Hello, and thank you for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church Maryville here in Maryville, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can visit our website to find out more information about our church or to find our full audio archive with all of our messages. So you can find all of that at www.vineyardchurch.us, or you can also subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. The following message was given by Aaron McCarter at the Vineyard Southeast Regional Conference in July 2022 in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Guys, I got a lot to cover. I'm going to kind of go fast. Just so uh, one thing that you need to know about me, I'm I'm really needy and insecure. And so I just need lots of feedback. Um, It just will help me a lot. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right on. Um. I'm going to begin with some historical and some sociological stuff, and I'm not a historian, I'm not a sociologist, so I'm really not qualified uh, to say these things at all, um, but my wife is the regional leader, <laughs> so here, here we are, <laughs> here, here we are. Um, uh, we're going to reference the screens uh, quite a bit for this, um, there's a well-established pattern in scripture uh, throughout church history of what happens in a place when there is a genuine move of God. And we can think about this in terms of of waves. Uh, And the first wave that we're going to look at is uh, the rise of Christianity. It's when in a place there are not people who know Jesus. And the kingdom of God comes and people turn to the Lord in mass. And there's a rise of Christianity in that place. And then lots and lots of people then know Jesus. Um, we saw this in the, not us personally, but in the first 300 years of church history. Uh, this is called the apostolic age. Uh, we saw an incredible uprising of God's power and devotion to the Lord and hope in his kingdom coming. Uh, that was the apostolic age. And we've seen this at different times and at different places, uh, just sort of smattered all around the globe throughout history. And you guys kind of, I mean, you know what that, what that looks like. It's incredible. There's, there's genuine, like genuine repentance when things like that happen. There are moves of God like that. Um, there is like full-on ridiculous, over-the-top, like bonkers love of neighbor that just, have, just flows out of the church. There's a zeal for, for worship, for prayer, for evangelism. There's unity within the life of a church and, and the church broadly. And then, of course, there are these incredible outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's a good time all around when you experience uh, a, 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 the rise of Christianity in a place. That's the first wave. That's followed by a second wave. Uh, the second wave is the rise of Christendom. And that, that might be a new word for some of you. That's like, our, that's like our special vocabulary word for the day. And I want to take just a minute to define what I mean by that. It's very important that we keep a clear line of separation between Christianity and Christendom because Christendom is not Christianity. Christendom is the culture that arises within a primarily Christian society. So when you're in a place and there's a rise of Christianity and lots of people have life with Jesus, then what happens is that starts to work its way through the culture. And it starts to change the culture. And a worldview arises 
not just among Christians, but also among non-Christians as well. It kind of gets in the water. You know, when a lot of people are talking about Jesus and the values of Jesus and the heart of Jesus, the people start to take that on for themselves. Even if they have no connection with Jesus personally, it becomes part of the cultural values, the worldview that is shared in a society. So, um, the basic values that we all hold dear, that we just consider so basic and, and apparent to us, um, things like valuing human life, things like sacrificing to help the weak, uh, things like seeking justice and not just revenge, things like not killing people, not taking their stuff. Here's what we need to know. Um, those values, as basic as they sound to our ears, they were actually really sparse. To say the least, the world over until the emergence of Christendom. Guys, that's true. So, so put it this way. Um, Christendom arising from Christianity took basic human decency mainstream. Does that make sense? That's what happened. So, in a Christendom society, uh, Christian values kind of, lead the culture on on many levels and even non-christians get something of a christian worldview along the way you don't have to be a christian to have in god we trust written on all your currency you guys you know what i'm saying okay so and what follows the rise of christendom is a, a third wave um and by the way i'm i'm just gonna i'm gonna continue to reference this screen i'm not trying to neglect this side of the room but I'm going to use this screen because I feel sorry for this screen. <laughs> Just the whole. And you, you might have been wondering, like, why do we have one that looks so janky? Um, and did they not know better? And so I just want you to know that this is very intentional. It was all done on purpose. This is symbolic <laughs> of the vineyard value that everybody gets to play. <laughs> like even the weak and the broken, you have a place in the vineyard. You know, you come in limping, we've got a place for you. Okay. All right, so there's a third wave that follows. So Christianity followed by Christendom, then the rise of societal growth. So here, here's what I mean by that. Um, I, I said that to some extent in a Christendom society, the values of Jesus start kind of getting baked in almost by osmosis. And what happens in when an entire society begins to less go against the grain of the ultimate truth of reality and start to run in coherence with that, then it is followed by massive societal advancements. Like incredible things. And this is why, it's really simple. The way that Jesus taught us to live, it's way, way more than this, but if, at, to put it really simply at, at its base, uh, the way that Jesus taught us to live um, is really good advice. And it's just, it's just a better, more loving, more fruitful way to be human in the world. And as a direct result, when those values start getting baked in just a little bit, and Christendom begins to emerge, then there is flourishing that follows that throughout the world. We've seen this again and again and again, and there is nothing like it. Brilliant discoveries are made. Quality of life goes up. Extreme poverty goes down. Arts and sciences flourish. Is it perfection? No, not even close. But is it improvement? Absolutely stark and profound improvement when a society begins to go in congruence with the heart of Jesus. All right. So I want to pause here. I want to make a very important, like this one's really important, okay? Really important point about wave number two, Christendom. Christendom is 
good. But Christendom is not the point. And here's the thing. Christendom isn't always good. It's not. Christendom, just like any other dominant ideology or worldview in a place, it amasses incredible power. It establishes institutions. It garners influence. And power corrupts. And institutions go sideways. And influence gets abused. And we all know this well because we've all seen it so many times. We could stand up here and tell the horror stories. People do weird and sometimes full-on despicable things in an attempt to try to hold on to power. So hear me on this. Like, we care about, we celebrate the, the, the flourishing that emerges from a Christendom society because we care about people's well-being. But do not get it twisted. Christendom isn't the point. And, and it isn't the source of anything either. Do you understand? It's just, it's just a result. It is an outcome. It isn't always right. It is profoundly corruptible. Everything that is good about wave number two has come exclusively from wave number one, Christianity. And all that is bad about Christendom is a distortion of wave number one, a distortion of Christianity, mostly at the hands of people who are obsessed with power, but also at the hands of cultural Christians. You get cultural Christians in Christendom, also at the hands of cultural Christians, people who aren't really devoted to Jesus and probably don't have any real life with him, and therefore they do not represent him well, but they wave the Jesus flag. And the fact is, um, there, there are lots of people, and this is a, I, I know who's in this room, we represent the Southeast, this is a heck of a thing to say to a bunch of people from the Bible Belt, but we know that it's true. Um, there's a whole lot of people who think that they have been born again, but the reality is they were just born into Christendom. All right, thank you. Whoever, I can't see any of you, <laughs> but thank you. Um, so that's a good pivot because um, that's bad, and I want to talk about bad stuff now. Um, uh, waves. Waves come up and waves go down. Yeah, and so if you've ever read the Bible, and I'm assuming, you know, I'm assuming some things with the crowd. Um, if you've ever read the Bible, you know that over the course of generations, all of us human types, we have a real tendency to falter in our devotion to the Lord. And just as we have seen Christian societies emerge, we have seen post-Christian societies emerge. So the second half of wave one is when people lose sight of their priorities. They falter in their devotion to the Lord. They lose the plot. That's what happens. We, over time, we lose the plot over the course of generations. I mean, these things, this is, by the way, if you think this is like a scientific graph, then <laughs> bless your heart. Uh, we're just like, we're painting with the broadest possible strokes here. And if this was to scale, the lines would be very bouncy. I understand all of that. Um, but over at broader strokes, um, People lose the plot over the course of generations, Christianity declines. And just as the rise of Christianity leads ultimately to the rise of Christendom, eventually the decline of Christianity, next slide, leads to the decline of Christendom. And that takes a while. 
Okay, it takes a while. Cultures don't shift overnight, and maybe it takes this long one in one place and this long in another place. Again, none of this is to scale. It happens over the course of many years, decades, generations, but it happens. And then finally, just as the rise of Christendom leads to the rise of societal well-being, so eventually the decline of Christendom leads to the decline of society. These are, these are leading and lagging indicators, if you're familiar with that language at all. Um, now, um, brace yourself for some, some bad news, a deep breath. But I think, I think, at least intuitively, you probably already know this. But just in case, here we go. Christianity has been in decline in the United States for quite a long time. For quite a long time. Like at least as long as I have been alive, for sure. And, and like, I don't, this might sound like a real stretch, but maybe longer than John Elmer has been alive. <laughs> Which really sounds like a lot. Is that all right, John? Are we okay? John, John, did I piss you off? I am so sorry. <laughs> I didn't have it. Uh, <laughs> so Christianity, don't, don't laugh, we're talking about the decline of Christianity. Okay, it's been in decline for a long time. Okay. Um, on a national level, you know, we've seen some responses to this. We've said, oh no, we can't, we can't just sit idly by and watch Christianity in decline. Let's start a movement. Let's do a thing. Let's gather some people. Let's fire some people up. Let's stir, some, stir up some, uh, some embers. Let's take America back for God, things like that. And here's the thing. There has been some really, please don't misunderstand me, like just trust that my heart's kind in this, but there's been some really good stuff that has come out of things like that. Things that were like breathed on by the Lord and were good. But ultimately, like once things, especially once they reached a scale that they, that they were uh, happening on a national level, um, there's been a major and fatal flaw in those responses, which is that ultimately they were not about the reemergence of Christianity. But instead, they were about a desperate attempt to protect and prop up Christendom. And the difference between those two things is unbelievably important. Even though there were really like, like sincere people in, involved, people who were genuinely seeking the Lord, it didn't change the fact that at the heart, ultimately, or at least by the end, the heart of movements like the moral majority or the Christian right, for example, there was a desperate attempt to hold on to societal and institutional power, money, and influence all of which are in decline because Christendom is in decline. Now, I know I said a couple of things that were adjacent to politics there, so deep breath. Just hear me. I, if you're going, is there an attack in the Christian right? I'm not. And I'm not afraid to either because none of you go to my church. I'm just going to leave after this. <laughs> so I, I would say it. <laughs> I'm not attacking the Christian right. Let's break that down, Christian and right. So first, Christian. I... I like really, I would like to strongly press upon you. I would love for you to all be Christians. And you can quote me on that. I like, I'm, I'm pretty strong in that direction. So I'm pro that, okay? And here's, so that's Christian. And, and right, listen, if you're on the right, then great, be on the right. That's fine and good. The truth is, if I can be honest, I so profoundly don't care 
I just don't give one single rip. I am so apathetic about your political position that it is probably a character flaw. It feels like, <laughs> like it's probably a sin. Like people care so much, I, could, I should care a little. I don't care at all. So, listen, please, please do not think that I am making a political statement. If you do, you are definitely all the way missing 100% of the whole entire point. On the contrary, what I'm doing is begging us to see that the church should be about Christianity, not about Christendom, which is why, as the people of God, our, ne- our work should never be hijacked by politics. That's because I asked for it, but I still really appreciate it. I'm not, I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying that the church needs to get the heck out of politics and go back to our first love, which is Jesus. Jesus, who was, I would like to remind you, surrounded by people who demanded that he get into politics, and he refused every single one of them. He was about another greater work. He was for a greater kingdom. Now, here's the thing that I see going on, and you see it too. I'm going to put words around it, but you'll, you, you've seen this. I see in a thousand ways Especially, and I think, I think Bible Belt folks especially get targeted in this. Um, I see people trying to create fear among believers saying, man, you know what? We, we used to have more power than this. Yes, we used to have more influence. We used to be at the heart of, of culture, at the heart of education. Billy Graham used to fill stadiums. We watched the Andy Griffith show. We had prayer in schools. We, we used to be better represented in government, and now we're losing our power. And so the message goes, we should, all of us Christian types, full-on panic about that. Guys, please don't fall for that. Guys, don't fall for that. You've got to see this. Okay. Okay. Let's be extra honest. If your hope is actually in Christendom, Okay, if, if your hope is in holding on to cultural influence, if your hope is in the money, the power, the institutional control that comes to Christians when Christianity is the dominant worldview, then yes, by all means, panic. <laughs> you should. You should. You're late. I mean, just full on, you should lose it. I'll go ahead and, and uh, quote the Pope on, on this one. Not Jay, Pope Frank. Um, <laughs> this is what, why do I say this stuff? Um, this is what the Pope said uh, to the leadership of the Catholic Church, December of 2019, not very long ago, just four words. He said, Christendom no longer exists. It happened first in Europe. Uh, then it happened in the United States. It, I don't know this, but I think it might be true that the Bible Belt South held on longer than anywhere else. But it's gone here too. Surely I'm not the only one. Has anybody noticed that all the people, or all, a surprisingly large percentage of people who are showing up at our churches are from California? Phoenix? It's like out west. We had, we, had like a, we had like a meeting with all the new folks. 
you know, like a dinner, glad you're here, blah, 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 tell us about yourself. There were so many more people from California than there were from Tennessee in that room. And so I ended up sort of, you know, asking, why, 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 why? You know, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to the God's country and the mountain air and all the good stuff. <laughs> but like, why? And what they said, and they didn't use this language, of course, but what they said was, is we want to go back to where Christendom is. And I just don't have the heart to tell them. <laughs> it's gone here too, man. Um, the final blow to Christendom in Europe was World War I, according to sociologists. In, in some parts of the United States, uh, Christendom started to decline in uh, the fallout from the 60s. In the Bible Belt, and this is Aaron's thing, so you can take it or leave it, honestly, but in the Bible Belt, I think it was the combination of social unrest and COVID-19. And now... As Christendom continues to decline, I think our society is starting to demonstrate some fragility. I think we're starting to experience the first, first fruits of some, not fruits, but decline. Uh, I think the cracks are starting to show. Um, and I, I put, look, I just kind of arbitrarily put a dotted line on the graph. I don't know where we're at. I don't know. I don't know. I was like, maybe, maybe here? Maybe here. I don't, think the, I don't think the bottom's falling out. I don't think the sky's falling. Um, I think the cracks are beginning to show. And when I say that, I'm not saying um, anything about, you know, the current economic uncertainty or some unrest or, or even fallout from the pandemic. Like, those are things that, that happen. That's, I'm actually not talking about those sort of current eventsy types things. What I'm talking about is what, in my own limited perspective, I judge to be a just profound emotional immaturity in our country. And listen, I mean, I could be wrong about it. It's just what I'm seeing, but I don't know. I've been a, I've been a pastor now. We, uh, we'll celebrate 18 years in September. That's a long time. We're becoming adults. We're going to buy cigarettes and vote. Um, <laughs> it's going to be great. Um, I've had, look, people, I've heard, the, I've heard every reason imaginable for leaving a church. And mostly I'm just like, I don't, fine, that's whatever. Like, okay, you, you wish, I don't know, you wish the girls were hotter. Fine, I get it, I get it. There are too many single people. There aren't enough single people, you know. The, the worship leader looks bad in skinny jeans. I, I hate your face. They're all, I'm like, I don't care. For some reason, my kid, who is so awesome, didn't end up being the cool kid in youth group. So now we're, I'm like, I, honestly, all of it, I'm like, okay, honest, like, fine. Like, I can handle it. I'm used to all of that. But you know, it was just for me. I was like, oh, my goodness. Guys, a mask policy? <laughs> like, we're going to leave a church over whether or not we do this for a bit? Like, seriously? And I know i got a good room for this because we've all got some wounds, you know? And I'm, o I'm over it. I'm over it. I'm better. I'm fine. And so are you. We've talked. It's fine. But no, I'm going, a mask? Whether, really? And so, you, but you might hear that and go, but wait, Aaron, what, what was your mask policy? <laughs> Can I tell you, I'm going to tell you the truth. All the policies. We did everything. 
We did everything for everybody from everywhere. I mean, guys, we had church online. So you don't have to see anybody. You don't have to get out. You can stay in your underwear. You church online. You don't have to see anybody. That's fine. We had church outside so you could breathe the fresh mountain air and glory to God. We had church inside with masks. Church inside without masks. We had people rolling in in hermetically sealed bubbles. We had, we had a service for that. We had a service where somebody sneezed on you when you walked in and you licked each other's eyeballs. We did all of it. Every single, and we did it all at the same time. Which means no matter where you were on this ridiculous spectrum of insanity, we got you covered at the Maryville Vineyard. And then they left because of the policy? <laughs> but I'm fine. I'm f- it's, it's fine. It's fine. And I... <laughs> I started thinking about it, and I thought, what's underneath this? What's underneath this? And I thought, it's obvious what's underneath this. Is people looked around and thought, wow, they're offering literally everything. And apparently people are attending all of those various varieties of service, which means there's a whole bunch of people at this church who do do not agree with me about everything. And I don't have the emotional maturity to handle that. So I'm going to go back to my echo chamber and, God forbid, do whatever they say. That's what I'm talking about when I think I, the cracks are beginning to show. We have no capacity to handle conflict, and that's hyperbole, but, but it's close. So look, if your hope is in a th- thriving society maybe you should go ahead and panic now too. If your hope is in Christendom, you should have panicked a long time ago. However, if your hope is in Jesus, you should be bursting with anticipation. (laughs) And this is why. This is why. Waves. Um... If we're starting to see a decline in society in the third wave, that puts us back to the random blue dotted line we put in there. Like, let's say that's even remotely close, right? Just say it's within a range, some sort of reasonable range. If we follow that dotted line all the way down to where it meets the red line, which is Christianity, what I think that portrays for us, because these are lagging indicators. If we're starting to experience the decline of society now, it's because we've already long ago experienced the decline of Christendom long before that started to experience the decline of Christianity. And so if we were to consider the genuine state of committed faith in Jesus, not the cultural stuff, okay? Not the people who check the box marked Christian on the survey because they're convinced grandma's looking down, but they actually have never met him. Like, I'm not talking about any of that cultural stuff. Not that in terms of people who are fully devoted to King Jesus and have bowed their knee to him and surrendered genuinely to him as Lord of all, like, maybe that's getting pretty low. So, why the optimism? Because I've I've just gone to great pains to tell you that the sky is falling. Um, Again, though, what do waves do? They rise, and they fall, and they rise again. And um, you can take my word for it on that, but what I'd rather you do is just read the Old Testament. Either way, I'm telling you, this is how it works. 
we turn from the Lord, and when we start to feel the pain of those choices, we turn back. I think we're starting to feel the pain of those choices in our country. Now, the pundits would tell you that now as believers, it is time for you to panic and for you to put all of your effort into propping up what's left of Christendom. I'm telling you, that's wrong. We don't serve Christendom. We serve Jesus. And we don't need to prop up Christendom. What we need is another outpouring of God's Spirit. And what I'm saying is... Maybe, maybe we're finally in a position for it. So, with all that in mind, we everybody doing okay? We're still hanging in? All right. With all that in mind, I wanted to discuss uh, one huge implication of this. And the truth is I want to discuss about 20 implications of it. But we'll just do the one. In a Christian society, please think about this. Picture it if it's helpful. In a Christian society, Christendom sits on the throne of culture. Picture that. It shapes the worldview. Christendom shapes the worldview in a Christendom society. It, it provides for the people there a default story of everything. It's a picture. What's happening in this world? Where, how do we get here? What's this all about? There's a default story of everything. But in the United States, Christendom has collapsed. It has fallen from its throne, and the throne is now empty. Think about this. As a result, there's now this huge void. Guys, the cultural throne in America is now vacant. There is no dominant ruling vision. There is no default story of everything. Christendom didn't fall because a challenger arose. Do you understand that? It was, it was chipped away at by competing ideologies, and ultimately it collapsed under the weight of its own compromises and hypocrisy. And so it fell off the throne. It wasn't a coup. Do you understand? So what that means is there was no heir apparent that would, was then waiting to now ascend the throne. So it's empty. And if the throne of our culture is empty, there is no consistent story of everything, no baseline, no default. So think about it. Sitting on that cultural throne obviously comes with tremendous power and influence. The fact that it's vacant creates a massive vacuum. And so what's happening here, just just as it did decades ago in Europe, is different ideologies, different worldviews are now vying for that throne. And frankly, it's making America a pretty weird place to live right now. So let's, um, let's remember together a very, 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 very weird story from the Bible. Um, it's Genesis chapter 6. Y'all remember the Nephilim? Remember that? What's that about? <laughs> One day I was like, today's the day I'm going to figure it out. And I went online, I started searching, and it was a deep, dark wormhole. And I got, I got scared. I got scared, and I closed my laptop, and now I, don't, I still don't know. So, <laughs> but <laughs> it's in there, and there are these, here's what happens. If you're not familiar with the story, there are these, there's these mysterious, malevolent spiritual beings called the sons of God. And they were somehow embodied 
they found human women attractive? It's one part I can understand. The rest, I'm like blown away. Um, <laughs> they found human women attractive. They mated with them. They spawned, this is real, they spawned a weird, evil, powerful, hybrid race of beings that were hell-bent on acquiring power. That was the Nephilim. And they were a huge problem. You may remember that the Lord, uh, like next verse, floods the earth. So they were a problem. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. All right. So just picture it. We've got, we've got weird hybrid beings that take parts of God's creation and then wrongly merge them with something very different all in an attempt to gain dominion. Now, why are we remembering together this very weird and upsetting story? <laughs> because I think we are seeing what I am calling, admittedly for my own entertainment, but I am calling them cultural Nephilim today. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about a new, weird, cosmic infestation of evil beings. I'm not talking about that. Um, what I am talking about is an unholy merger of God things with not God things. And those cultural Nephilim are now vying to ascend the vacant throne of American culture. Let me explain what I mean. If it doesn't make sense yet, hang in, you'll, you'll get there. Christendom has collapsed. It still holds a lot of power, though. In our society, in America, Christendom holds tremendous power. It is still by far the dominant religion, Christianity is, um, if not now the dominant worldview. So here's what's happening. With this vacant throne and the massive vacuum that's left as a result of it, competing ideologies, different worldviews that do not on their own have nearly enough cultural capital to make a legitimate bid for the throne, they are now, listen carefully, they are picking up pieces of Christendom, pieces of Christian ideology, joining them with their own, making weird hybrid versions of their worldview, all with hopes of looking Christian enough that they might use what remains of Christendom in order to make a successful bid to the throne. Does that make sense? Okay. So let's look at some examples and maybe it'll feel a bit clearer. I'm going to give an incomplete list, okay? Incomplete. Um, I said this already um, happened in Europe, so let's start with the, the one that ultimately won out in Europe, uh, which is expressive individualism. Now, you may not know those two words together, but you know exactly what expressive individualism is. I'll explain it to you. This is the ideology, uh, the ideology that elevates individual expression above everything else. So you be you and be true to yourself and follow your heart no matter what, etc. Cetera, et cetera. You guys familiar with this ideology? The Bible calls this people whose God is their bellies. So whatever I feel here, whatever my gut ultimately says is right, that's going to be my God. That's going to rule my day. That's expressive individualism. It has been in the water since day one in America. Um, but here's what it does. It latches on to these Christian ideas. Ideas about personal rights. Ideas about certain freedoms. About the autonomy of the individual. About the value of humanity, of human individuals. These are really powerful ideas. These are Christian ideas. Expressive individualism grabs that from Christianity and then marries it with the idea that personal expression is the ultimate good. 
This is the ideology that won the throne in Europe. It's probably the betting favorite to win it here. Again, it's, it's for obvious reasons. Guys, it makes the individual a god and leaves us as individually ultimately unaccountable. And people really like that. <laughs> now that's, that's not a hard sell. So it gets a lot of momentum quickly. It has some truth. It has some lies. It is completely inadequate, inadequate as a worldview. It's a Nephilim. Just enough of Christianity to fool a lot of Christians. All right, so let's do two more. Nephilim, we'll do, the, we'll do these two together. Um, and deep breath, everybody. We're all going to be fine. <laughs> um, the political left and the political right have done the same thing. There's two more Nephilim. And I think this is obvious, like maybe someone way smarter than me will convince me otherwise, but this just seems so patently obvious to me that the political left and the political right are right now desperately vying for the throne of American culture. That sounds right, doesn't it? Yeah, okay. So the political right is taking its own view of the world, that whole political perspective, pulling in Christian ideas. Um, ideas around the sanctity of life. Uh, around certain personal freedoms, Christian ideas about certain forms of accountability and fiscal responsibility, etc., 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 and then mixing that all in with their own broad political perspective, hoping that they have pulled in enough from their base, enough from expressive individualism, because it pulls from that as well, and enough from the vestiges of the fallen Christendom to now collectively take the throne. The political left is doing the exact same thing in the exact same way. They're just pulling different bits. That's the only difference. Starting with a political vantage point, pulling in Christian ideas about caring for the poor, about loving the foreigner, about personal freedom and autonomy, or just, just different parts of the Christian ideology of personal freedom ontology and, and um, personal freedom and autonomy that the, the right is pulling, just different bits. They're pulling in a lot from expressive individualism too, just different parts than the right is, all with the hope that they have pulled in enough equity from enough of the camps to now take the throne. They're Nephilim. So listen closely. <laughs> I'm not rejecting the political left or the political right. I'll be very honest with you. Is this a safe place? Thank you. I got real nervous for a second. But did I say the wrong thing? It's a safe place? All right, I'll be honest with you. Just, just us, don't tell anybody. I don't understand politics. Like, at all. I tried to figure it out, and it didn't work. I don't, I don't know what we should do. I don't have the answers. I was hoping one of you people would figure it out. I don't know. The only thing that I feel strongly about is that we hold on to all of the Christian bits that has been picked up by both sides. I feel strongly about that. I don't reject the political left or the political right. I absolutely reject both of them as a new worldview. Neither of them are adequate to give us a coherent, logical theory of everything or of absolute truth or of a reliable representation of ultimate reality. Are you kidding me? The political left and right? It's not, it's not even designed to do any of that stuff. I said I was hoping that one of you would figure it out. What if one of you did? 
What if you did? You're the one. <laughs> you are the Neo of political thought. <laughs> You've got it all figured out. Every, every issue, everything. You know exactly what we should do. Here's what I would say. I would say that your flawless, perfect political perspective is of no value to us as an absolute worldview. It's not that. So, I'll read you a quote from James Shea. He said this, Faith gives us from God himself the overall narrative for the human race, who we are, who God is, what his purposes toward us are, how we have gotten into our current state, what God is doing about it, what is coming in the future, and therefore how we should live. Only Christianity can do that. So what am I saying? Be left, be right, be in the middle. It's all fine. I don't care. I should, but I don't. But I am pleading with you to reject both of them as the new lenses through which you understand the world. And, and people are clearly doing that all around us. I, I think maybe politics is the fastest growing religion in this country, and that's not good. All right. We did all right. Let's do one more. I said earlier um, that the, the betting favorite to win the now vacant throne is expressive individualism in the United States. I think that's true, but I, I think here in the Bible Belt, it's a different one. I think here in the Bible Belt, um, the favorite might actually be Christian nationalism. LAUGHTER <laughs> Thank you, Cheryl. I, I, can I tell you the truth? I'm not a, the least bit afraid. I'm a little afraid that I'm a little too fired up. <laughs> so here we go. I'll, I'll dial it down, and we're just going to say it. Christian nationalism is an ideology that blends Christianity, patriotism, and political activism. And this is now very confusing because you know what all three of those things have in common? They're all good things. Christianity is a good thing. Patriotism, provided you're like honest and reasonable about it, is a good thing. Political activism, again, provided you're honest and reasonable about it, is a good thing. Christian nationalism takes all three of them and swirls them together into one bad thing. I like vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry ice cream. I like them individually. I like them all together. Apparently, a lot of you do as well. That's why Neapolitan is a thing. <laughs> you know what I don't like? I don't like, we'll say, uh, raw broccoli, a slice of cake, and maybe a cup of vinegar all swirled together. <laughs> I like all those things. They're all food. I, it's, it's a travesty to put those three things together. I think it's a sin. I don't have a verse for it, but it feels like a sin to put those things together. Some things aren't meant to go together even if they're good things. That's what's happening in Christian nationalism. I'm telling you, this Christian nationalism thing is one nasty casserole, guys. It's, and here's the thing. I am seeing Christians everywhere, and hear me, I love you. I am seeing pastors everywhere just eating it up everywhere I look. And we should be sickened by it. This is the one that I think has the best chance of fooling the most Christians. That's why the Bible Belt is particularly vulnerable. Because the others take politics as their base and mix in Christianity. 
This one takes Christianity as its base and mixes in politics. And, you know, we're like good Bible-toting Bible Belt folk, and so that sounds pretty good to us. If you hear teaching that takes those three things, which are all, again, good things, that's what makes this so tricky, Christianity, patriotism, political activism, if you see them getting blended, you need to turn and run. If you're preaching that, you need to turn and repent because that's called syncretism, and what you're left with isn't Christianity. It's something different. Because here's a real big problem. This ideology, it gets real confused about which of those three is actually on the throne, and Jesus is not in the business of sharing his throne. And this is, this is really easy to miss. This is so easy to miss. Come back to something that Elmer said earlier, because, guys, it walks like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, and it flaps like a duck, and it ain't a duck. It's a Nephilim. Don't be fooled. And note this as well. It's very important. I hope you can see this now. Christian nationalism has emerged from scared Christians who are panicking about the fall of Christendom. That's where it came from. That's the thrust of the movement. The thrust of the movement is holding on to institutional power and influence and control. And for one, that's a lost cause. And if, guys, if we're going to spit in the wind, it better at least be for Jesus and not for a bunch of defiled institutions. And secondly, it misses the whole point, the very core of what Jesus taught. Like, if, if you're wondering whether or not something is a Nephilim or the real Jesus, there's a really clear litmus test. Is it concerned with power or is it focused on being last of all and servant of all? That's the distinction. Christian nationalism is about winning and people like that. But the way of Jesus is about being last. All right, I want to read you four verses. Uh, don't worry, that wasn't my introduction. I'm just, the verses are at the end. <laughs> it's okay. Dear Lord. This is from Haggai. I'm sure you've all got it memorized, but I'll read it anyway. Um, uh, this is what the Lord of Armies says. It's very interesting. Try to follow along. Ask the priests for a ruling. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and we all know what that's like. <laughs> you ever read stuff and you're like, wow, the cultural gap is really big on this one. <laughs> that's a tough one. If a man's doing what? Why would he do that? But try to stay with me. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, any other food, does that food then become holy? The priest answered no. Then Haggai asked if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it then become, that food then become defiled? And the priest answered it becomes defiled. Then Haggai replied, so is this people and so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration and so is every work of their hands. Even what they offer there is defiled. So it's a parable. He says, something is dirty it cannot be made clean just by touching something clean but on the other hand if something is clean it can be made dirty just by touching something dirty we're living in a pandemic so i feel like i, I can explain this pretty easily if i sneeze in my hand <laughs> and then i shake your clean hand does your clean hand make my sneezy hand clean does my sneezy hand make your clean hand dirty? There you go. 
That's the point. Like it's a one-way thing. Some of this impurity transfers, purity doesn't. And here's the point. Putting some Christian language on something doesn't make it right. But putting something foreign into Christianity defiles the whole thing. If you have some cake and I put poison in the cake, the whole cake is poison. But if you have some poison and I put some cake in the poison, the whole thing doesn't become cake. That's, all, that's what he's saying. <laughs> all right, so. I've been talking about the collapse of Christendom. I've been trying to convince you not to worry about that because Christendom is not the point. You may still be struggling with that. That's a tough pill to swallow, the collapse of Christendom. Maybe you didn't know. That's a tough one. It would be reasonable for you to ask, why would God let Christendom fall? That seems like such a bad thing to happen. Well, here's my answer to that, and sincerely, bottom of my heart, you can take it or leave it. My answer to that is Christendom fell because it had been defiled. It had linked up with so many sneezy hands, it had rubbed shoulders with so many foul things that it barely even resembled the teachings of Jesus. So when people have prayed, God save Christendom, and that obviously wasn't the words they were using, they would say, help Christians hold on to societal institutions and powers and influence in our society. Will you please save Christendom? I think God said, why would I do that? It's defiled. Christendom is using my name in vain. Christendom has ascribed so many evil things to Jesus. Why would he protect that? It's not bad that Christendom fell. Because cultural Christianity hasn't been representing Jesus well at all. Christendom has been lying to the world about who Jesus is. Guys, America didn't reject Jesus. It didn't even reject Christianity. It rejected Christendom. And it might have been right. And so now where are we? Now, honestly, I just... Back to that chart thing, Johnny, at the last one. I... I think now we have an opportunity in the midst of the aftermath to offer people the real Jesus. Like not a watered down or politically entangled Jesus, just pure Jesus, undefiled. Jay said on Monday that the vineyard was born in a moment not unlike the one that we're in now. I have some faith, this is big, I have some faith that the vineyard might be reborn in a moment like now. And I actually think the stage is set for us really well. And I know it looks like the trends are bad in the U.S., and, and, and it, it does, you know. But if we pull the camera back and, and we look at the whole world, there's actually a very different picture. So let me run through this very quickly. The growth of Christianity in the world is relatively flat. But there's a clear divergence between two paths. Please stick with me one more minute. On one path, churches are rejecting the authority of Scripture and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. And in those churches, I cannot overstate it, and I will not sugarcoat it, the bottom is absolutely falling out. On the other path, there is a massive and historically unprecedented move of God. I'll give you some context. 
Pentecostal charismatic movement is exploding with growth in this world and we've never seen anything like it. Never. In 1900, there was no Pentecostal charismatic movement. It wasn't a thing. By the year 2050, there will be more than 1 billion of us. That will then be more than 10% of the world's population. From 0 to 10% in 150 years. Let's compare it to something. In the original apostolic age, the church went, that was the big one, right? With the actual capital A apostles. The church went from 0 to 2.5% of the world's population in 300 years. Do you see the difference? Now, how can that be true? How can we be riding this unprecedented wave of the rise of Christianity at a time when the growth of Christianity only barely exceeds the growth of the population? That's the hard part. What that illustrates is how rapidly the collapse is of churches that reject the authority of the Bible and the current ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Guys, it's enough to offset the greatest explosion of church growth in the history of the world. And we just have to choose the right path, guys. And it ends up looking pretty clear. Like, stop playing games with Scripture, guys. Like, stop playing games with the authority of God's Word. Stop playing games with the authority of Scripture. Embrace it fully as the final arbiter. It's like it... On all matters, stop playing games with the authority of Scripture. Stop clinging to the remaining vestiges of a crumbling Christendom. Let it go. Christendom's not the point. And start seeking the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think, I, I really think I could with all confidence say, like, the vineyard is perfectly positioned to do exactly that. I'm pretty sure that's what we were built to do. And now we have to shift gears, guys. We have to shift from Christendom mode, which is like religious cruise control, and shift into apostolic mode, which is like off-roading for Jesus, man. <laughs> and that, that is so cheesy. That is so cheesy. I just want you to know that I don't care. When I was in my 20s, every illustration had to be so cool. Uh, now, at the end of my life, <laughs> just kidding, I'm 41. Uh, now, I was like, I just want you to remember I don't care. So, we'll go cheesy. No more religious cruise control. You have to kick into apostolic mode. That's off-roading for Jesus. If you want to know what that looks like, read the book of Acts. Um, let me tell one really, really quick story, and maybe, maybe some musicians can come help from here. I wasn't going to tell the story, but I want to. Um, it's a good story. It's a guy in our church. He's been in our church for a long time. And he's an incredible guy. And he wanted to meet with me a couple of weeks ago. Aaron, can we sit down and talk? I, I've got a lot to tell you. Yeah, absolutely. Let's sit down and talk. We sit down and talk. And for a couple of hours, he goes, man, I, you've got to explain what has happened to me. I don't understand okay, tell me the story. It's like, well, it started last fall, and uh, I was in a, a hospital room because my dad had cancer, and I was praying for him, like, all through the night, and as I was praying, I started praying, 
I later found out I was praying in tongues. And that was real weird. Um, and then, uh, then now everything's different. I was like, what do you, what do you mean, man? He's like, I, it's weird. Like, my wife gets uncomfortable. I can't not talk about Jesus to everybody. <laughs> like, I bring it up when it's not appropriate. I bring it up <laughs> all the time. And I can't not do it. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, what else? He's like, well, I, in, in the work that I do, I often pray for the people that I'm with. And I've done that for years. I was like, okay, great. And he was like, well, it's, it's, it's different now. Um, I, I, I pray for their healing. And now I've always done that. But now it works. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's great. Like, like one or two healings or something? And he goes, no, Aaron, dozens right in front of me like right before my eyes, again, and I'm shocked when it doesn't happen. Can you, can you tell me what happened? I said, man, you got baptized in the Holy Spirit. You got baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's a good story, isn't it? That's a good conference story. You tell stories like that at conferences. And then people hear and they go, oh, that's awesome. That Maribel Vineyard must be a really good church. Aaron's, Aaron's a good pastor. <laughs> That's what makes it such a good conference story. Can I tell you the, the other part of the story? It happened uh, a couple days ago. Sitting in one of these services. I don't know. They're starting to blur together. And uh, I was thinking about that. And I was praising the Lord for all those healings. I mean, incredible, creative, beautiful miracles that he was reporting to me. Incredible things where God met him in the process of evangelism and did remarkable things. And I'm thanking the Lord for this. I'm thanking the Lord for baptizing him in the Holy Spirit. And then the Lord said something in kindness but mean. How does he do that? He said something mean, and it was just a wave of kindness. And it was something like this. Aaron, if you had been consistently inviting your church to experience the power of the Holy Spirit... Maybe I wouldn't have had to sneak up on him in a hospital room. And it, it felt true. That felt true to me. Oh God, dear God, forgive me. Dear God, forgive me. We, you go ride the coattails of Kristen, man. You can go with the flow. You take your paddle out of the water and you'll drift in the right direction in Christendom. In post-Christendom, man, it's a totally different game. Not only can you not take your paddle out of the water, you're absolutely desperately reliant upon the power of the Holy Spirit to like do everything. We can't do it without Him. <laughs>